This is the Michael Easley In Context Podcast. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, we are in studio today with Robert J. Morgan. Robert has been the senior pastor at Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville for 36 years. I can't, I still can't believe that. Well, I don't know how it happened. I couldn't find anywhere else to go. They just kept voting you back in Yes, they couldn't drive me off, and so we've just been stuck (laughs) with each other. But it's been a wonderful church. Uh, We've had a great, great experience there. Best-selling author, winner of many awards, over 4 million copies of his 25-plus books in print. Uh, He's written with David Jeremiah, Turning Point Magazine, published articles in many books. published many leading published in many leading Christian periodicals. He also contributes to the Huffington Post on occasion. That's got to be fun. Well, it is. It's hard to get the time necessary to do those yeah. pieces. That's my biggest struggle, but uh, they're very uh, receptive to them for the most part. You have, and, uh, um, and I enjoy the opportunity. Robert's married to Katrina. You have three daughters, 12 grandchildren. How in the world? You just don't look that old. Well, thank you very much. We love our grandkids. <laughs> are you, know, you are was, you an insufferable uh, grandparent? Yes, they all live in the Nashville area. Beautiful. And so we're very grateful about that. We didn't expect them necessarily to, but we're glad they do. Good for you. And I know your wife's thrilled. King College in Bristol, Tennessee, magna cum laude from Columbia International University. High honors from Wheaton Graduate School. You know, I didn't know the Wheaton part. Luther Rice Seminary and a Doctorate of Divinity degree from Columbia as well. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Very happy to be Thanks here. Thanks so much. First, I got to begin with telling you my wife loved the Red Sea Rules. She went on and on and on about it. I bet she's um, she sold a few copies for you. I'm pretty sure. Well, I'm very glad it's been helpful. <laughs> that book came out many years ago, but it just and it never had any backing behind it, never any marketing, but it has just caught on through the years. And every year it sells a few more than the year before, and it seems to have a life of its own, and it seems to meet a real need with people going through difficulty, and so I'm just very grateful for that. When, when you step back and look at a writing ministry, and a lot, of, a lot of pastors try to write, did you early on say, I want to write, I want to publish, I want to be a, you know, an no, author? No, I didn't think about it, really. Um, I, was, I wanted to uh, devote myself to an expositional pulpit ministry. Uh, I learned... Uh, to use a lot of stories and uh, a lot of illustrations. I learned that from a couple of helpful sources. And, um, and so I just began uh, my preaching ministry by writing out my sermons in manuscript. And by the way, to interrupt you, um, they're no longer pu- publishing them, but you used to do these ministers' uh, resource handbooks. We did those for seven years. Yeah. Now, Thomas Nelson did them you know, longer than that, but I gave up after seven years. They were exhausting well, to put together. I, I, I was but, gonna say the most detailed information I've ever seen in a resource book yeah. down to hymns and prayers and cross references, illustrations and manuscripts and exegetical issues. I mean it was a treasure trove for uh for people who absolutely. have a public speaking or a teaching ministry. Uh and so we did that. I did those for seven years. It wore me out by the end of that seven years and I had to uh uh really reluctantly give it up but I thought if I have to do another one of these. I just don't think that I can maintain the quality of it because they were very time intensive. But 
but uh, they're still in, uh, in print, you know. The yeah, uh, and they're they're evergreen. They are so, evergreen. Uh, so young preachers. And, and you contributed uh, some tremendous material to them. I remember <laughs> that. I was so so excited when you agreed to uh, be a contributor to it. Well, we have our mutual friend Mo- uh, Morris Proctor with uh, Logos, I guess Faith yeah. Life Bible now, right? Is that the new name, Faith Life? I don't know. I think they've changed the name from Logos. Yeah. Anyway, well, back to Robert J. Morgan. Um, so you started out pastoring in this church in Donaldson, Tennessee. Did you think you'd stay there a long time? Well, no, I, we started in Greenville, Tennessee. Greenville. Um, I, when I graduated from Wheaton, uh, my wife and I were married. It was on August the 28th of 1976. And I thought um, that I would find a pastorate very quickly. Uh, I, I, I was from the mountains of East Tennessee. And there are like a gazillion churches in those mountains, and um, and a lot of them need pastors. And I graduated from May, in May from Wheaton, and I thought by uh, August I'll have a church to pastor, and Katrina and I can start together. Uh, but we could not find anyone wanting to uh, invite us to be their pastor. I candidated, which is what you do yes. up in the mountains and elsewhere, I guess. But I candidated in a dozen churches. And they all turned me down. I was inexperienced, and either my resume was too short or my education was too broad or my hair was too long. But for whatever reason, we just kept getting turned down. And so I worked at Sears and at JCPenney, and Katrina worked at a discount store. Uh, and it was on our first wedding anniversary, August 28th of 1977, that we started pastoring a little church out in the country. Uh, near Greenville, Tennessee, um, and uh, and I wondered why did we go through that year without any mm. vocational ministry? And some years later, my friend Bob Thomas, who uh, I went to junior high school with and who was a who's a tremendous Christian, he said, "Did I ever tell you what I gave you for your uh, wedding present?" <laughs> and I said, "No, I don't remember getting a wedding present from you." <laughs> He said, well, he said, I didn't have a lot to, uh, to give, but he said, I came across that verse in the Old Testament that says that when a man is married, he shouldn't go into battle for a, a year. year. And he said, I prayed specifically that you what? wouldn't have a church to pastor for a year so that you and your wife could gel together in your marriage. And, uh, that and, and, you know, it was on our first wedding anniversary that we began pastoring. So I said to him, so you're the one responsible <laughs> for that. And so we had this lovely little church up in the mountains, uh, Harris Memorial Church, uh, seven miles outside of Greenville, a little stone church with a cemetery beside it and a, uh, a church bell in the belfry. Wow. And, uh, and we were there for two and a half years before we came to Nashville, which was on January the 1st of, uh, of the year uh, 1980. 80. Okay. Yeah, 1980. Now, in Donaldson, in that area, 80, it had to be country. Yeah, there wasn't, you know, now when you're in Donaldson, uh, you see all of these hotels and restaurants and the right. malls and everything. Uh, back then, those things were not there, except that the Opryland Hotel was there in its original phase. Okay. They hadn't done all of the expansions and right. everything, but the hotel was there. And, and so there was, and Opryland was there. So it was beginning to build up. But it was still a pretty rural place and, yeah. and uh, a, a lovely place. In fact, we uh, bought a piece of property with two and a half acres, which you can't find now, and raised sheep in the backyard uh, for acres. many years. So, uh, uh, 
so that so we've been there all those years and and have been thankful for the opportunity. Now most pastors think they can preach sermons and turn them into a book. Well, I don't know. Um, a lot of pastors think they can write sermons and turn them into a the, book, and most publishers aren't interested in that. There is a real difference between a sermon series and a book. Uh, most of my books have been sermon series in one form or the other. But you have to do a lot. In fact, I'm working on this right now. I've got a deadline tomorrow turning a series of sermons that I did into a book. And you just have to take a sermonic form and know how, as a writer, to put it into a readable literary form. And that isn't as easy as it sounds. It's two hats. It's it two is, hat, although I will say that when you have done, the, the real work is the sermons for me. Because what, how that much requires, time do you spend in your 20 hours, 30 hours? Yeah, something like for that. For a message. But, but you, uh, um, you, you have to uh, do all the research and craft the logic that will uh, flow through the sermon from the conclusion, from the introduction to the mm-hmm. conclusion. Uh, I, I mean, there, it's the same thing with a chapter in a book. All right, I'm interrupting. Uh, yes. For, for expositors out there, and I've been doing this yeah. 35 years, uh-huh. is it ever get any easier for you? No, <laughs> except except that as you go along, you do have a larger foundation to build sure. on, and you and you are strained by certain theological issues because you've, you've, you've studied that them. for a time. And, and okay, yeah. yeah, so it is easier in the sense that you have an accumulated library of background information already in your mind. But that doesn't mean you can take shortcuts There's in no your shortcuts. preparation. There are no shortcuts. Um, yeah. And being able to drill into the text and to enjoy it and to have fun with it and to meditate on it mm. is the key thing. I'm of the conviction, I do uh, seminars on uh, how to uh, prepare and deliver notable, noteless sermons, but um, uh, I'm of the conviction that meditation is the missing segment mm. in sermon preparation as well, for that matter, in Bible study among Christians all across America, we have forgotten how to meditate, or we're afraid to meditate because it was uh, co-opted by um, Maharishi Mihash Yogi uh, 40 years ago and, uh, and has been owned now by the secularist myst- uh, mystical uh, thinkers. And, uh, and somehow we've lost this whole thing of meditation, but to actually have a good sermon requires not just studying and preparing the sermon, but it requires learning how to go through the meditative process uh, that has always marked, I think, what it means when it says in Jeremiah to stand in the counsel of God. So uh, for a person who's doing a, a devotional, a Bible study on their own, they're going to open perhaps their Bible, or maybe some commentaries. They're going to read a little bit. They spent, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes studying that. How do I meditate on it now, Robert? Well, you meditate on it by learning the text, not necessarily memorizing it, although memorization is helpful, but you you just become very familiar with the text. You study it, uh, you go through it. I'll open my Bible and mark it, and a lot of times I'll photocopy it and mark it and just try to internalize that text. But then you have to, as it were, leave your desk and think about that passage. Now, we're told... Um, by people who study these things, that today there are only three periods during the day when you think, and that is when you're in the shower or when you're driving or when you're exercising, maybe walking or running. Uh, Typically, the average American only really does any 
serious thinking during those three times. Interesting. Uh, I think that we've got to create a few more times than that. But in, in my case, what I would do, for example, right now I'm studying the verse in Philippians 4, uh, which says uh, it's at the end of the wonderful anti-anxiety mm-hmm. portion of, of um, uh, Philippians 4. And Paul says, whatever you have received or learned or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Uh, so I've just, I studied that verse. I looked at the words. I drilled into it. I've already been dealing with the context of the overall passage. Uh, but I've found that as I go to bed, I just mull over that. What does that look like? I wake up and in the shower this morning, I was thinking about that verse. Uh, as I was driving down here, I was thinking about that verse. And it dawned on me something that I hadn't read in the commentaries. But when Paul wrote that, the people that he was writing to did not have most of the New Testament. Right. They didn't have any way of knowing what it meant to live out the Christian life, uh, having received the Lord as Savior. So Paul was saying, I know you don't have all of the data right now. You can't study all of the epistles. I haven't written some of them yet. You haven't studied the book of Revelation. Maybe you don't have much of the Gospels. And you need to know how to live the Christian life. So just look at me. Do what I do. Watch what I'm doing. Listen to what I'm saying. Follow my example in this. Well, doesn't he say, is it in Galatians, uh, be, uh, be example... Uh, an example of me as I am of Christ. Christ. That, yeah. that always throws me on my heels. Okay. Yeah. Example yeah, but he was saying that partly because they didn't have the totality of the New Testament to show them how to be Christian. So he was saying, well, you'll just have to look at me, which uh, then begs the question, can someone looking at your life right. come away with an accurate impression of what Christianity is? Mm-hmm. So anyway, you just think about these things. And it is in the process of meditating that the meanings and the applications are unlocked. Mm -hmm. And then you go from there into preparing your... Do you keep your audience in mind? Oh, yes, I do. But my primary audience is me. me. I just sometimes feel that most of my sermons are self-therapy sessions and I'm letting people eavesdrop. I I think most preachers do that whether they know it or not. (laughs) I mean, if if they're worth their salt, right? Because if that text... Uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, if it doesn't go through you first, you got no business giving it to somebody else. Absolutely. And it's a little dangerous to to prepare your sermon with the audience too much in mind. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that you want your messages to be general enough to apply to everyone. And if you're thinking of your audience, sometimes you're thinking of that one person in the audience sure. who you're aware of who's been struggling with a particular issue. And if you're not careful, you can begin sort of targeting them in your sermon in a way which may not be healthy. Right. The other problem is that it's very popular and easy and trendy now to have application-based sermons. And I believe that sermons should be expositionally based with application. And there's a big difference in my mind between an application-based sermon and an expositionally-based well, sermon with application. And, and my old school training was you always let the text lead you. You know, it's the big idea, the propositional truth, the key theologies, the primary, whatever the mm-hmm. teaching of the text is, then you communicate that to current audience. But if you didn't apply it, it was, you know, be warm and be filled. It was, you know, there was, you had to drive home that application. Frankly, as a communicator, that's the number one area I struggle with most. It is hard. It is hard. One of the things that helps a lot are illustrations. 
because an illustration or a story in your sermon, uh, you know, it accomplishes several things. One is that it helps the children tune back in, uh, which is very important. Yeah. I told you about the little church I pastored in the country. It was beside a uh, orphanage. So half or more of my audience every week were elementary children. So I learned you have to really be able to communicate to children. And if you do that, you don't have a whole lot of trouble keeping the attention of the adults. But illustrations and stories help cue in the children. It also helps people bring their minds back if they were wondering a little bit. But the primary thing is it gives you a neutral, a neutral arena uh, in which you can make application. Uh, someone said it may have been you. Uh, that a sermon, uh, that an illustration or a story in a sermon is a picture that becomes a window, that becomes a mirror. So you paint a picture, and then it becomes a window. It lets light in on the subject, and then it becomes a mirror in which the person can mm. see himself. So if you're having a problem with your temper or with anger, and I'm preaching on do not let the sun go down on your wrath, I can't very well use you for an illustration. Uh, I can't say, now this fellow here uh, in the second row, uh, he's a prime example of, of what I'm talking about here. Well, it uh, might be interesting if you did. Yes, and I know there are some <laughs> preachers that did that. You know, Paul talked about Yodi and Synthica. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I can tell a generic story about someone that I knew who had a similar problem, and it will parallel what the audience is going through but it won't cause them to get their defenses up. Mm -hmm. And so in using that story as a laboratory, you can apply the truth of the sermon in a safe zone, but in a way that can be very effective. And we see one of the classic examples of that, of course, was Nathan going to David. Yeah. You know, in this a, great story that, you know, this family exactly had a, a lamb. Yeah, and yeah, that was the, the man. Yeah, so it's a lot easier to approach it that way. Um, let's talk about your writing ministry as a whole, because you said you didn't start out to write but now 26 books and counting? Well, we've lost count, but part of the reason is because they come out in different forms and some are edited okay. and some are ghostwritten and and uh, some are excerpted in Hard, other books. Hardest book and, you wrote? Oh, I don't know. They're all hard, but they're all fun. <laughs> so um, I just don't know the answer to that one. That's easiest a very good one. question. One that was the easiest, that came together the quickest and... Just it worked. might have been the Red Sea Rules. Okay, so let's talk about yeah. that. Because, yeah, that's where you're probably known the most for. That and Then Sings My Soul okay. really has sold more copies than the Red okay. Sea Rules. Uh, but but they're both, uh, we've been amazed at both of them. So for someone that hasn't heard of Robert Morgan and doesn't know Red Sea Rules, give them a, a thumbnail of, of this well, story. Well, this book, uh, the genesis of it, um, do you remember the story of A.W. Tozer when he wrote The Pursuit of God Did So on a Train and Between Chicago right. and Texas right. in One Night? <laughs> <laughs> Don't that, you wish, yeah. That isn't exactly what happened to me, but I was on a flight from Athens to America in the late 1990s. I'd been um, leading a tour in Israel, and uh, I was very, very distressed about a problem uh, that I was coming back home to face and didn't really even want to come back home and face it. I was just, um, the time in Israel had sort of diverted me, but now I was having to come back to reality mm -hmm. and, and deal with this thing. Well, the flight left early in the morning from Athens, and, and uh, I'm very conscientious about uh, my daily quiet time and my daily devotions, but it was just too early to get up in the hotel. So as soon as the plane took off, uh, I lowered my tray table. No one was sitting beside me. I had the window seat, uh, and I opened my Bible and um, began 
reading where I'd left off the day before, and it was in Exodus 14, which is the story of the Israelites going through the Red Sea. And it was a very odd experience. I've never had anything like this quite before or since, but it was as though the Lord Jesus walked down the aisle and said in that empty seat and said, now I want to show you some things in this passage. And I had a yellow pad. And as I read Exodus 14, the ideas that flew into my mind uh, instantaneously, I couldn't write down fast enough mm-hmm. to write down the principles that came out of that story of how the Lord led the Israelites into this impossible place, and he led them out of that impossible place, and he did so for his glory, and he did so in unique ways. And there were just principles that tumbled out of that chapter. And so I wrote them down as fast as I could, uh, and I came back home really feeling that this is uh, the answer to, uh, to resolving the difficulties uh, that I'm facing. And so I put them into practice, Um, and it wasn't uh, abracadabra, it wasn't a sudden uh, magical or or Mm -hmm. miraculous resolving of problems, but really that provided the basis for for a resolution of the things that uh, were troubling me. Well, you know know what we do from that point on is we create a series of sermons on it. And so (laughs) I preached a series of sermons uh, that we call God Will Make a Way. And there was a little song back then, God will make a way when there seems to be Mm -hmm. no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. And so we sang that song, and I did this series of 10 sermons based upon these 10 principles uh, from Exodus 14. Um, And then my agent said, because by that time I'd managed to get an agent who were far and few between back in in the uh, uh, late 90s or mid-90s, but he said... uh, uh, this ought to be a book. And so I just took the sermons and I did some literary reshaping of them. And we had a book of, you know, a trade size book, maybe 50, 60,000 words, I don't know. But it was right after the prayer of Jabez had come out mm. by Wilkerson. And um, so Greg um, uh, Johnson, my agent, said, you know, I think this book would just really work better if it were that same size. So I went in and uh, took out two-thirds of the words, and we just boiled it down to essential reading. Um, and then it was published, and it was called The Red Sea Rules. And we cannot believe the traction that book has had or the people that it's helped or the letters that we've received or the way that churches everywhere are using it. It's now been made into a curriculum, a video um, series curriculum called Crisis 101, uh, we have a study guide to go with it. Um, and so I can't say that I wrote it overnight on an air train like Tozer, but really <laughs> the genesis for the book came out of that airplane flight. And, uh, and it almost just wrote itself because it was funneling truth through my own experience. Mm. Uh, and so I'm just so grateful for that opportunity and feel like it, it has a special touch from the Lord. Do, do young writers ask you how to write, and do they ask you about inspiration and creative blocks and things like that? Well, they ask me how to get published. Okay. Um, I have an awfully lot of people who want to be published. Um, there are times when I'll do something on how to write. Uh, most people who want to be published think they already know how to write. And they've written something, and they just want to get it published, which is harder and easier now than it's ever been before. It depends on how you go about it. Uh, but I recently did a, uh, 
Uh, I had a wonderful time at uh, Turning Point in California with Dr. Jeremiah's team, his creative team, talking about the craft of writing. Uh, and I do think that there are opportunities now for people who know how to uh, be with the Lord, how to think, how to meditate, how to craft the material, and then how to put it in a readable format. I think there are some tremendous opportunities mm -hmm. now for people to get that out. So we do get a lot of inquiries about that um, more than I, I can. I want to help everybody, and sometimes I just don't know what to do. do. What, what's your uh, What's your weekly routine like? Are you early morning guy? Yes. Well, my wife is disabled. Uh, Katrina has multiple sclerosis, and she's in a wheelchair. And so I'm a caregiver um, on top of that, and I have to to just balance all of that around. But um, my essential routine, I was taught, as, as you probably were, uh, by our mentors, to devote the mornings to study, to begin the day with morning devotions. And to me, this is, I'm a great evangelist about this. I know there's different philosophies and everybody's got different schedules and, and the Jewish people began the day the night before. I know all of that. But uh, what I do is I wake up in the morning, get a cup of coffee um, and uh, wake up. I usually eat a bowl of cereal and watch the, the news. And then I'll go get my wife up and get her uh, ready for the day, which is a little bit of a process. And then I have an upstairs desk away from my normal study. And I just go up there and I'll spend, I'm, I've been spending more time there recently mm. because that's also my thinking time. Uh, but what you do, and I think this is the, uh, the missing step, is I'll spend time in Bible study and prayer, um, not to find sermons, but just for nourishment, Yourself, yeah. just because I love the scripture and I pour into it uh, just for me. Uh, I have my prayer time. Uh, I may um, uh, think about ideas that I want to develop and sketch them out a little bit, just prayerfully, but but not anything real rigorous. It's a devotional and thinking time. Uh, and then, Michael, I'll take my uh, calendar and my to-do list, and I'll say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And I'll look at my calendar, uh, and I'll see there may already be some appointments, such as this one that's there. Uh, but there's always discretionary time, and I'll look at all of the things I need to do long-term and short-term, big projects, urgent things, and I will frame out a plan for the day. And then when I leave that uh, desk upstairs, I've got a plan for the day. A realistic plan. Day, a you, realistic plan. You get done. Mm -hmm. And you try to get those things clicked off, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't always get them clicked off, and sometimes there's interruptions. But having, and I talk about this in Mastering Life before it's too late, that really is the the essence of, uh, of my book, Mastering Life Before It's Too Late. Ten it's, biblical strategies for a lifetime of purpose. So yes. for a person who's not disciplined, see, some of us are kind of disciplined. You know, we're self-starters, we're to-do list. There are those creative types, not to be stereotypical, who, boy, if you told them to sit an hour in the morning and read the Bible and pray and meditate and take a deep breath and look at their day, that would immobilize them, Robert. <laughs> well, I, you know, I know people say that. We have such a... Uh, uh, a spontaneous society now that we think that we're incapable of being channeled through disciplines. But Jesus did say, go into your closet and shut the door mm -hmm. and talk to your father who is in secret. Uh, now, admittedly, you know, there are ways of doing that. And he went up into the mountains and had his prayer time into the Garden As of Gethsemane. Was his habit, right? Yeah. Yes, but there there are these routines. I've just read a wonderful book on uh, artists and their routines. Uh, every great literary 
figure and every artist has a routine. Right. You have to have a routine. Those routines are what channels your energy so you don't have to keep making decisions mm-hmm. and think about things. So my point is you've got to have time with the Lord as a part of your routine. Now, how that translates into your schedule, you know, I'll leave for you. But we do need this time. And for me, it's that morning time when I can just sit and feed on the scripture, think about it, have prayer time, plan out my day, and feel like I'm going into the day not aimlessly and not just reacting to whatever happens during the day, but with a real plan that I feel I've gotten at least while I've sought to be in the presence of the Lord. If this was um, your last book, I'm not a prophet nor a distant cousin, but if this was your last book and you were going to leave a message to the folks at Donaldson Fellowship, to the body of Christ at large, what would be the 25-word purpose-slash-theme of Robert J. Morgan's last book? Well, the very essence of this book, uh, Mastering Life Before, it, Before It's Too Late, comes from a verse um, which can be summarized in that word count, actually from the Living Bible, uh, Psalm 139, verse 16. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. And what I've tried to say in Mastering Life Before It's Too Late and what I would say if it were my last message, I think, is that God has a plan for your life that is broken down to one-day increments. He assigns our work in one-day increments. It's wonderful to think about what we'll be doing five or ten years from now, but we don't know if we'll be here five or ten mm-hmm. years from now. Mm-hmm. So to be faithful today, to say I must be about my Father's business today, to seek to finish the work he gives us to do today, is the secret to a lifetime of pleasant productivity and to a lifetime of faithfulness. Robert Morgan, you can find out more about him on our site. You can also go to his site. We'll have links available. Robert, thanks for your time today. Blessings on your ministry, and uh, it's great to be with you. My joy. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context. Subscribe to our newsletter for the latest news and information. This is Michael Easley in Context. Don't let the world teach you theology.